us to continue with our study of Christ of the book. Hebrews 10.7 tells us, In the volume of the book, Well, then said I, Lo, I come, and in the volume of the book it is written of me to do thy will, O God. In the volume of the book is written about the Lord Jesus Christ. John chapter 5, verse 39. Search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and they are they which testify of me. You drop down to verse 46, and it gets even more explicit. For had ye believed Moses, you would have believed me, for he wrote of me. And we're going to look at one of the books that Moses wrote uh, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Actually, the one that Moses communicated with was the Lord Jesus Christ himself. He is the Word of God. And as we continue with this study, we remember that in Genesis, God was creator. In Job, which is the next one we looked at, he is almighty. In Exodus, he was deliverer. And in Leviticus, he is the great instructor. He is the instructor. He instructs a redeemed people who he just delivered from Egyptian bondage. He, did, he redeems them, and then he tells these redeemed people how they are to conduct their lives. The laws that are contained in the book of Exodus, I mean, in the book of Leviticus, are laws that teach what is acceptable and how to approach God and it details the sacrifices. That's part of Leviticus. The second part of that is it talks about the laws that are acceptable in their approach or their walk with God. The first part of the book, it has to do with how they are to approach God and details the sacrifices. The latter part of the book tells how this redeemed people or to walk with God, and it's all about sanctification. And it's so interesting, as you go through this, you see God instructing His redeemed, His delivered people how to walk before Him, how to approach this holy, righteous God and what the requirements were. The key verse as we go through the book of Leviticus, is Leviticus 19.2. Leviticus 19.2 tells us, Speaking unto all the congregation of the children of Israel, and saying to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Now the word holy is not to be confused with righteousness or rightness. Yes, our God is righteous. But the word holy has to do with separation. It has to do with being set apart. And he was telling his people, you be set apart as I am set apart. 
See, and, and when we consider this word, when we talk about this word holy, what it teaches us, what it tells us, is that our God is, it is all part of the, 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 the approach of, as we're teaching the doctrine of salvation, is that God is so holy, He is so set apart, He is so high above, He is so separated, that there is no way that we could ever appease Him or satisfy His righteous requirements. That's what the word holy means. The only way is through the Lord Jesus Christ. But here in Leviticus, God is telling His people, you be separate, separate, even as I am separate. You be separate from the Gentile nations, from those who are rebelling against me. In Exodus, we talked about the fact, fact that God delivered His people from Egyptian bondage. And it was in, Levitic, uh, in Exodus that we find God determines that Israel is to be a nation of priests. Look at Exodus chapter 19. Exodus chapter 19. Verse 5, Exodus 19, verse 5, Now therefore, if you will obey my voice indeed, and keep my covenant, then you shall be a peculiar treasure unto me above all people, for all the earth is mine. Now in Leviticus, he's going to tell them, you be separate, you be separated, you be holy. But look at verse 6. And you shall be unto me a kingdom of priests, a holy nation, one that's separated. These are the words which thou shalt speak unto the children of Israel. Now, yes, holiness and righteousness are so closely connected when it comes to pleasing God and serving God. But they are two different words. And in Exodus, we find that this nation, of, this nation Israel is to be a nation of priests. Then Leviticus teaches, trains, shows this delivered nation of priests how they are to walk before God, how they are to approach God, and all the sacrifices and the feast days are developed and are described and shown. It is in Exodus that God declares to Moses his name. Remember when we went to Exodus chapter 3 and Moses hears God speaking to him in the burning bush, which is the Lord Jesus, and he asks God, who, who are you? And God says, I am that I am, and that, that I am that Hava, the Jehovah, comes from that. God is telling him, that's my name. That is who I am. I am Jehovah. I am Yahweh, is another way to present it. In Leviticus, we find that covenant name of God. See, the rest of the world, they didn't know God by that name. They did not 
understand that covenant relationship that God desired to enter into with His chosen nation, Israel. That nation that was to be a blessing to all the Gentile nations as God just reaped benefit upon benefit upon this chosen nation, the one that He loved, as the blessings flowed upon Israel and then as those blessings overflowed, as God proved His steadfast love as God proved his desire to be a blessing to them the Gentile nations that were around were to look at Israel and go wow they do worship the true and living God they were to be that nation of priests they were to represent God to man and man to God that was the whole purpose here in Leviticus as this nation of priests is being trained we find the name of Jehovah that covenant name, that one that identifies the Elohim, the, the Almighty God, the El Shaddai, it ties him to the nation Israel in a covenant relationship. And in the book of Leviticus, that name is used by far more than any other book. Now, I mean, you can count the names of Jehovah many more times, but in each separate book, Leviticus uses that name more than any other book, detailing that Israel had a specific, a blessed covenant relationship with God, and he uses that name over and over to identify himself. The Hebrew name for this study, Leviticus, is not Leviticus. Uh, Leviticus is a, a name that the Greek uh, uh, came up with, Leviticus, implying that it's all about the, the, uh, the priest uh, which from the tribe of, of Levi and all their working. So the name, Hebrew name for the book of Leviticus is Wayagra. And I'm sure there's a million Hebrew scholars out there listening that go, what did he just say? I may have said, uh, uh, where's the restaurant? I don't know. But Wayagra is the Hebrew name for this book, or close to it. It means, and he called. Look at Leviticus 1.1, 1, 1, because that's where the name comes from. Look at Leviticus chapter 1, verse 1. And Jehovah called unto Moses. He spoke unto him out of the tabernacle of the congregation, saying. So God calls Moses. And so the title of that book in Hebrew comes from the word, the words he called. And what is so interesting about that is Bible scholars tell us that it is written in minuscule. In the Hebrew, when a word is written in minuscule or in smaller letters than all the rest of the type in the font, 
It means it is being said in a quiet manner, in a peaceful manner. It's being said as you would talk to a friend. It's in direct contrast to Exodus chapter 3 when God calls to Moses out of the burning bush and he said, Moses, Moses! This one here is like a friend, Moses. And then he proceeds to describe to Moses, here's what I want you to do. Here's what you must do in order to approach me. Here's what you must do in order to satisfy my righteous requirements. The first part of the book talks about the sacrifices. The last part of the book talks about sanctification. But Moses... I want you to speak to the children of Israel. See, now they have that covenant relationship. Now the children of Israel know him as the I am. The great I am. He's already shown them, I will be your deliverer. Didn't you see the Red Sea part? I delivered you from Pharaoh's army. I will be your provider fed you manna from heaven. I will be your source of water. I am the one that will heal you. See, God has already proven to Moses and the children of Israel that he is the great I am. And he says, Moses. And he proceeds to tell him what he wants him to know. The book of Leviticus emphasizes the work of the priests, especially the high priest, and their responsibility when it comes to taking in the sacrifices, when it comes to observing the feast days. See, they were in charge of that. They were responsible as the priests of God, the priests of the nation of Israel, they were responsible for carrying out those responsibilities. And what's so interesting, whether it be the sacrifices, the five sacrifices we're about to look at, or the seven feast days that we're about to look at, they are all types of Christ. Folks, I'm telling you, God over the ages has gone out of His way to get through to fallen man that I am the true God of heaven. And I love you so much. And let me show you all these things that are types of that great and marvelous and wonderful love. I mean, just the fact that there are five offerings, five throughout Scripture is the name, is the number of grace. Number of grace. And there are five offerings. Number seven is the perfect number. And there are seven feast days. Every one of those feast days point to the Lord Jesus Christ. Every one of those offerings point to the finished and complete work of Jesus Christ. It has an amazing truth as you go through these pages. 
God just proves himself over and over and over again. One of these days, what it would be a good study, we don't have time today to, to get in, into that, is you take the book of Leviticus and the book of Hebrews and you just lay them side by side and you study them in that fashion because they are so interconnected as far as explanation goes and all what was going on. Look at Hebrews chapter 9, verse 11. I will we'll look at this one. Look at Hebrews chapter 9. Verse 11, but Christ being come high priest of good things to come by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 11, that Christ being the high priest, and the high priest not after uh, Aaron's order, but Melchizedek's, which is even a greater order. Look at verse 25 through 28 of Hebrews chapter 9. Let's go with verse 24. Hebrews 9, verse 24. For Christ is not entered into the holy places made with hands, which are the figures of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. See, that was the work of the high priest entering into the holy of holies. It was all a picture of what Christ was going to do. For then must he often have suffered, talking about since the foundation of the world, had he entered the tabernacle, the holy of holies here on earth, for then must he often have suffered since the foundation of the world. But now, once in the end of the world, hath he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Everything in Leviticus was a picture of what Christ was going to do in order to fulfill and purchase our redemption. So everything you find here in Leviticus is a type of Christ. Now these five offerings, these five sacrifices, Christ is the sum of all of these offerings. They depict a certain aspect of, of the finished work of Christ on Calvary's cross. There's payment for sin. There's the constant peace that he gives. There's that provision that he supplies. There's that assurance of that constant contact with our all-powerful God. These specific sacrifices point to what he accomplishes on man's behalf. I think it's interesting that all of these sacrifices had to be from domesticated animals. Nobody could say, you know, I'm going to go kill a, beer, a deer or I'm going to go kill, uh, I'm going to kill a rabbit and I'm going to sacrifice that. And the reason for that, is two, two main reasons for that. You ever wondered? Why, couldn't, why did it have to be a domesticated? Why did it have to be an ox? Why did it have to be a lamb? Why did it have to be a goat? Why a domesticated animal? Number one, they're all pictures of Christ because a, a domesticated animal is easy to lead. 
It's easy to lead. You can lead them to the slaughter, and they'll just follow right along. That's pretty important, right? The other thing is anybody could afford to go out and kill a deer and put it on there. It had to be something of great value to the offerer. It had to mean something. It had to be important. It had to be valuable for them to surrender it, just as the Lord Jesus Christ was valuable. The fact that they quartered it, the fact that they would take those sacrifices, strip the skin, quarter it, and it, it was so uh, demonstrative as which pieces went with which sacrifice and how they were to do it is to make sure that it was without blemish. That it was without blemish. All of that pointing to Christ. Ooh, that, that has a blemish. You can't be sacrificing that. It had to be a value. It had to be a value. Uh, uh, it had to be a value. And plus, Christ was stripped when he was crucified. All of that pointing to the cross. Each one of the sacrifices that we're going to look at, each one of the sacrifices was an act of faith. They were an act of faith. You know, we know from Scripture, Hebrews 10.4 tells us that the blood of bulls and goats could have never forgiven sin. That, that blood of that bull, that blood of that goat, it, it had no redeeming quality. It could never save from sin, for it is not possible that the blood of bulls and of goats should take away sins. So what was it? It was their act of faith. It was their act of faith that caused them to bring that ox or that sheep, that goat, to the sacrifice. The blood, that, that blood wasn't going to do it. His blood, have we talked about many times, it could. The perfect, spotless Lamb of God. His blood, that was a type of what was coming. But all of that blood that was spilled, it could have never forgiven sins, but it was their act of faith that day after day after day they brought those sacrifices and they offered them up to God. And by faith they offered them. And it was God's amazing grace then that caused him to accept those offerings as a sweet-smelling savor to himself. Matter of fact, by the time we get to Malachi, you know, God chastises Israel. They've already, been in, they've already gone into captivity. They've already come back. And they've already started to offer sacrifices that were not spotless or perfect. They were offering the blind and they were offering the, the, the lame and they were offering things that were not perfect. And the Lord says, stop doing that. You're doing that again. Stop doing that. Because it was absolutely Imperative. Matter of fact, in Malachi 1.8, it's quoting Leviticus 22.22 22 and the instructions that they were given. They were to bring the very best sacrifices 
to the Lord. What were those sacrifices? Leviticus 1 through 7 talks about the different sacrifices. In Leviticus 1, 1 through 17, it talks about the burnt offering. The burnt offering was the sacrifice that burned continually when they weren't moving. That first year, the burnt offering was the sacrifice that was burned in the brazen altar 24 hours a day when they weren't moving. They would start it in the morning, and well, not start it, but they would, they would have the sacrifice in the morning, and then they would have the sacrifice at night, and the priest would be in charge of keeping that fire going all 24 hours a day. The burnt offering was a continual offering that the nation of Israel, those who loved God, were offering as a reminder, you are our God. This was a voluntary voluntary offering. It was a voluntary offering. I mean, they had to do it, but it was one that they weren't, it was not compulsory. The last two were compulsory. The sacrifice one, two, and three are all sweet, smelling, sweet, savory that God just accepted. One, two, and three are all about a sweet savor to God. The last two, the sin offering and the trespass offering, were not considered sweet-smelling savors. They were sin offerings. Those were not sweet. But the burnt offering was a continual reminder to the children of Israel and to God You are our God. We worship you. We are in a right relationship with you as we perform these tasks. Now, what's interesting, we need to keep this in mind too, as we go through Exodus, Leviticus, next week, Numbers, and then Deuteronomy. Exodus, its period of duration took a year, 12 months was a year. During that 12-month period, as they just crossed, into, crossed over the Red Sea, they were there in the wilderness, but they weren't in the, where they were headed. They spent a year camped. And in that year, God gave them the Ten Commandments, gave them the law. He gave them the directions and instructions on building the tabernacle. They finished the tabernacle. The book of Exodus covered that entire year that they were there. Day one of the second year, going into the second year, started the book of Numbers. The book of Numbers covers a whopping 30 days. 30 days. They have the law, they have the tabernacle, the promised land, and that's the reason he took them. See, when they came out of Egypt, there really was a short route to the promised land. They could have been there just that quick. But God didn't want to send them to the, that quick. There were things they needed to know. Number one, they could count on Him. They could depend on Him. They could trust in Him. And boy, many episodes took place so they could learn Jehovah 
is our God. That took a year. But when that year was over, all of a sudden, God started moving them in the cloud of fire by my night and the cloud by day. God started moving them out. Or he would have. That was the plan. Well, what happened? What happened? The timing was right. They sent the 12 spies into the land, remember? And the 12 spies went in, and 10 of them went, Oh, there are giants in the land. We can't beat them. What is, what is God doing? Well, he's just spent a whole year telling you, showing you could trust him. Only Joshua and Caleb came back and going, Hey, let's go. Come on. Let's get sword, sharpen the swords. Let's go. We can do this. And so because of their unbelief, they didn't trust God to go into the land right then. They spent 40 years in the wilderness. Exodus, Exodus is a year. Leviticus is 30 days. Numbers covers 40 years. Deuteronomy covers 30 days again. And at the end of the and Deuteronomy, that's when they go into the promised land. But it was all God's way of saying, trust me, I want to show you that I'm the true and living God. I don't know how I got off on that, but it is important that we know. The burnt offering, back to the burnt offering. Only clean animals, only domesticated. The first three offerings are all volunteer, not compulsory. The burnt offering depicts that abiding sacrifice. It was a reminder, your sin is forgiven. They could smell that burnt offering. They could see the burnt offering. That was a reminder, the sacrifices has been made. The priests are conducting their business. That offering was totally consumed by God. A hundred percent of it. That offering was placed on the, the brazen altar and the fire, the judgment, it consumed every part of that sacrifice. The meal offering was also voluntary. You can read about that in Leviticus 2. It's an important, important sacrifice where the burnt offering was a picture of Christ and that we're safe in him, that because of his death, we maintain that relationship with God. The meat, the meal offering or the grain offering was a picture of the sinlessness of Christ because that meal offering had to be crushed wheat, baked but with no leaven, it had to be unleavened, picturing the sinless Redeemer and God supplying what His people needed. And it was voluntary. And they would bring in only a small portion of that as, as they did exactly what Leviticus told them to do. They would take that and only a small portion of that would be thrown on the brazen altar. And that that. Wheat 
and that oil mingled together, the wheat representing the bread of life, the oil representing the Holy Spirit that gives life. All it was a picture of, of Christ Jesus and his sinlessness and that perfect sacrifice. Part of it was thrown on the altar, the rest of it was taken, and it was consumed by the priest and the guy that was making the offering. By the way, each one of these offerings, when the offerer, including the burnt offering, the burnt offering went all the time, but there was also offerings brought in between the morning and the evening sacrifice. The people were bringing offerings all during the day. And the offerer would bring his ox or he would bring his goat. He would bring the prescribed offering. And he would bring it to the priest and he would lay his hand on that offering. He would then be the one to kill the sacrifice. And then the priest would take the blood and that's what he would sprinkle at times on the mercy seat or, or, or on the incense and then all inside or on the horns of that, that altar, whatever it was prescribed. But it was the priest that would take the blood and do what was prescribed. But it was the offerer that would bring the sacrifice and kill the sacrifice. It was the offerer that would bring the bread mixed in the right percentage and it depicting that faithfulness, that sinless one, the one who is the provider of life. It really was a testimonial of we're right with God, both the burnt offering and specifically uh, the, the meal offering. But boy, was the peace offering also so important. That peace offering was volunteer. That peace offering was a sweet-smelling savor. God in heaven just accepted what they were doing as long as it was according to his prescribed way. And he, he, told, he told him exactly how to do it. The peace offering, it was called the offering of reconciliation. It declared, we are right with God. I am right with God. It was a testimonial about their relationship with God. The burnt offering depicted Christ. The meal offering depicted Christ. The peace offering really depicts the Lord Jesus and the fact that we are at peace with Him. All three of these depict the fact that, just like Ephesians, look at Ephesians 5, 2 real quick. Ephesians 5.2 And walk in love as Christ also hath loved us and hath given himself for, a, uh, for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savor. Those were those first three offerings. They were the sweet-smelling savor. It was a burnt offering. It was the meal offering. It was the peace offering. All three of these declaring that as believers, they are right with God, they stand perfect in God, depicting Christ Jesus. The sin offering and the trespass offering was not a sweet savor. It was not a sweet savor. The sin offering 
was also conducted on the feast days. The Day of Atonement depicted the supreme sacrifice pointed to what Christ was going to suffer on our behalf. That's the difference between the sin offering and the trespass offering. The sin offering was sin toward God. And even if they say, you know what, I don't, I, I don't remember my sin, but I'm sure I have sinned. So to be, I'd rather be safe than sorry. And they'd bring, they'd bring the offering, which was smart of them. Because that had to do with their sin toward God. Trespass offering, it had more to do with their sin toward their fellow man. Did they lie? Did they cheat? Did they do? So there was the sin offering. It was, God, we're sorry. Here's this offering. The trespass offering was acknowledging, God, we weren't honest. We weren't faithful. We weren't, and it was, it was that's when they did the trespassing offering, the trespass offering for sin. It, sort of like the Ten Commandments. You ever notice how the Ten Commandments, the first five, have to do with man's relationship with God? It has to do with God. The second has to do with conducting a relationship with man. Check that out one of these days. Well, the, the sin offering and the trespass offering, the sin offering had kind of covered the first five. Trespass offering covered the last five. But each one of these offerings proved that God loved us, made a way that sinful man could approach him, and they all pictured Christ Jesus. The seven feast, chapter 23, goes into the observance of those. Um, quickly want to cover those, but let me say this. I want you to understand that we are not saved by the life of Christ. You understand that? We are not saved by the life of Christ. We are saved by his death. And there is a big difference. We are saved by his substitutionary death. Think about this. The Lord Jesus lived a perfect life. Amen? He was spotless. He did not sin. Death had no claim on him because he did not sin. He was perfect. God the Father could have said, Way to go, my son. Matter of fact, he did say, This is my beloved son in whom I will please. But he could have said, Thumbs up, son. You showed them how to live. You showed them how to satisfy my righteous requirements. Congratulations. Now come on up to heaven. Now the rest of you, you see what he did, how he did it? That's what I expect. That's what God could have done. But not if he wanted to save us. For the wages of sin is death. God knew that I did not need a good example. I needed a Savior. Christ, 
we say all the time, Christ died for us. If you don't get anything else out of this series that we're preaching, yet Christ died for us, but even more certain, more accurate, He died as us. That's the point I'm wanting to make. And all of this points to Christ Jesus. Yes, He died for us. But He became sin for us, even though He knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. Wow! What a Savior. The seven feast days, read about them in chapter 23 on. The Passover, of course it points to Christ Jesus. He's our Passover according to 1 Corinthians 5, 7. He's our deliverer. The Feast of Unleavened Bread, that points to the sinless perfection of Christ. He, he's without sin. Now, the Passover and Unleavened Bread, they are so close together, they are, he can't, and also the uh, Feast of First Fruits, all three of those are within the pretty much the same period of time the same week you have passover unleavened bread and first fruits first fruits depicting the resurrection the, the the grain that first pops out in the harvest all about the lord jesus christ the feast all point to him pentecost it means 50th the significant thing about pentecost is 50 days after the resurrection, uh, God's going to do something. God's promises are going to be fulfilled. He is a faithful God. People say, what does Pentecost mean? It means 50th. That's what it means. You've got 49 days or seven perfect Sabbaths Seven times seven is 49. You have seven perfect Sabbaths, and after that last perfect Sabbath, you have Pentecost, where the promises of God were being fulfilled to the nation of Israel. Then you have the Feast of Trumpets. Wow. That has to do with the gathering of His people. Those first, those first four feasts, they had everything, they, they took place in the spring and early summer. Then you have the fall feasts. Trumpets. The trumpets had to do with assembling the people. Matter of fact, the trumpets were used for four things. To gather the people, to assemble them, to call them to war, to get them started on their journey and announcing a feast. That's what they'd blow the horns. And there was different horn blowing indicating different things. But primarily it was the gathering of the people. And it was all a picture of Christ's return. All the, the first four have already been fulfilled. Folks, the other four are going to be fulfilled. If the rapture were to take place seven years after that, these are going to start being fulfilled. It's exciting to think about that. Then you had the Day of Atonement where the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies. He would carry out the prescribed 
directives of the holy God. Only the high priest could go beyond the veil and into the presence of God, and he would offer blood sacrifices. The blood, the sacrifice already been taking place. He'd go in and offer blood sacrifice for himself and for the nation. First for himself, because he couldn't go in before a holy, righteous God without that sacrifice. The seventh one was the Feast of Tabernacles, indicating Israel's rest and security in their Messiah and his promise to tabernacle, excuse me, to tabernacle with his people. You know, you read through the scripture and you shake your head and you wonder, how in the world could Israel miss this? It is so clear. It is so plain. Hey, even I can understand most of it. That tells you how simple it must be in order to be understood. Amen? Thanks. Remember the rich man in Lazarus? Remember the rich man in Lazarus? And the rich man came out and he said, Father Abraham, let Lazarus take just a drop of water. And Abraham said, can't do it. There's a great gulf. And the rich man said, okay, but send him to my brothers. They don't, I, I don't want them coming here. You know what Abraham said to him? They have Moses, the writings of Moses. They have the prophets. Let them listen to them. How important that is. We study and we think, how could they be so stupid? But I think the same happens today. People deny, they reject, they scorn. In eternity, we're going to shake our heads and go, how could you? It was so plain. It was so simple. God was demonstrating his love in such an obvious, obvious way. Let's pray. Father, we come before you, and as we look at your word, we just stand amazed at how you reached out over the ages to declare your love and to show your expectations. And Father, to point to that complete and finished work that was coming, the one who was going to be the Savior. Father, we thank you for your word. May we never, never, ever neglect it, but may we study it in order to to see what it is that you say to us, what you say for us, that we might glorify you. Now, Father, I pray if there's anyone here this morning that does not know you as Savior, Father, that they are not going to continue to reject. Father, they're not going to be like so many of of the Israelites. They're not going to be like those children. But, Father, they're going to be like those who believed, who trusted, who obeyed. Father, we thank you for how all of these sacrifices and all of these feasts points to the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And we thank you, Father, how by grace today we are saved by believing in him. Father, there, there are no works, there are no deeds that we have to perform, there are no sacrifices. Father, we come to you by faith, believing in him, trusting in his finished work. Father, you make us new creations in him. Father, if there's anyone here today that's never believed that, by faith may they trust Christ this very second. And we pray these things in Christ's holy and most precious name. Amen.